Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in, day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but it sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us and all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We're a nonprofit, and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. 
It's for and through you that we tell these stories. And now we have the story of our first wired president and the way that Abraham Lincoln used the telegraph to help win the Civil War. Also, the story of when Joplin, Missouri took a direct hit from the costliest tornado in American history and how they recovered. But first, the story of the most decorated war dog of World War I, fondly named Sergeant Stubby. Jeremy Swick of the College Football Hall of Fame recounts the remarkable story of the street dog turned soldier turned mascot. Sergeant Stubby of the First World War, the heroic story of America's most decorated war dog. So who was Sergeant Stubby? Nobody knows exactly when the dog, later known as Sergeant Stubby, was born, but it is thought to have been during the first half of the First World War. He was a dog of uncertain breed, described in early news stories as either a bull terrier or Boston terrier, with a short stature, barrel shape, and friendly temperament. Until 1917, it is thought that he wandered the streets of New Haven, Connecticut, scrounging for scraps of food. But he was no ordinary stray. Just a few years later, following the end of the First World War, the tenacious canine would become known as one of the most decorated dogs in American history. Stubby's fortunes changed in July of 1917 when he began hanging around a group of soldiers, members of the 102nd Infantry Regiment, as they trained on the grounds of Yale University. One of the men, a 25-year-old private named Robert Conroy, took a shining to the young dog and began to take care of him, naming him Stubby for his stature and tail. Although the U.S. military didn't yet have an official military working dog program, Stubby's instincts and charm made him a fan favorite of the regiment, who taught him how to raise his paw in salute. By the time the unit had left for France, Private Conroy had become so devoted to his new furry friend that he actually stowed him away in the ship. When a commanding officer discovered Stubby's presence, the dog responded instinctively by saluting him. The officer was reportedly rendered speechless by the gesture, and the incident secured Stubby's place as the official mascot of the Yankee division. Stubby was involved in many battles while stationed overseas. His sharp ears and ability to hear the whine of artillery shells before they landed were extremely useful, and Stubby was particularly helpful in looking for wounded soldiers in no man's land. His sense of smell, too, meant that he could readily detect mustard gas attacks. He once saved an entire company by alerting the men to don their gas masks. He was present for four offensive and 17 battles in total, while serving for around 18 months. One of Stubby's greatest recorded achievements occurred late one night on the Western Front. Stubby captured a German spy and saved a doughboy which is slang for United States infantrymen, from a gas attack. Hearing a sound in the stillness of the night on the Western Front, the dog, who guarded sleeplessly, stole out of the trenches and recognized a German. 
Attempts by the German to deceive Stubby were futile. Seizing the prisoners by his britches, Stubby held on until help arrived. Alerted by the commotion, Stubby's fellow soldiers were able to capture and imprison the spy. For his efforts that night, Stubby was issued an Iron Cross medal that had originally been given to the German spy. Following the war, Stubby returned home to America. He was honored with the Medal of Heroism from the Humane Education Society, an animal protection organization, and met with Presidents Woodrow Wilson, Calvin Coolidge, and Warren G. Harding. After the war, he went on and became the mascot for a sports team at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where Conroy studied law. At the halftime of games, he was given the football to play with in front of the fans. He would push the ball with his nose to great fanfare, which is one of the most exciting parts about Stubby becoming a, a mascot for a college football team after serving valiantly in the First World War. Stubby was also given the unofficial rank of a sergeant, a higher rank than his master at the time. In 1926, Stubby died at home, reportedly in Conroy's arms. Stubby had such a great impact on not only his owner and the regiment, but really the public as a whole. His obituary was featured in the New York Times and was given a half a column, which was way more than many notable people of the time. Stubby's legacy lives on as his body was donated to the Smithsonian Institute, where it is currently on display. And a special thanks to Jeremy Swick for that terrific piece of storytelling and what a story it was. Sergeant Stubby, well, how he got to be where he got, it was just a simple accident, actually. He was just wandering around for food in New Haven, doing what stray dogs do, looking for the next meal, and he's adopted by the 102nd Infantry Training at Yale University, which is situated in New Haven. And then it's off to battle. He's a stowaway, but impresses uh, a superior officer with his saluting skills. And then it's off to war, where his ears and his nose served vital functions in protecting his fellow comrades in arms. And then life as a mascot at Georgetown University his owner went to Georgetown Law and brought Stubby with him. And the tradition, by the way, of the mascot living at the dorm of Georgetown University to this day prevails. And as always, our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are good and beautiful in life. But if you've already gone to college or don't have anybody going to college, well, Hillsdale's got terrific and free online courses for high school students, for elementary school students, or just for anyone interested in American history and all kinds of other courses too. Go to hillsdale.edu. The courses are free and my goodness, you won't want to stop watching them. Again, go to hillsdale.edu to watch their free online courses. And by the way, if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, 
we have history author Chris Klein with the story of how Abraham Lincoln used the telegraph to help win the Civil War. Nearly 150 years before the advent of texts, tweets, and email, President Abraham Lincoln became the first wired president by embracing the original electronic messaging technology, the telegraph. The 16th president may be remembered for a soaring oratory that stirred the Union, but the nearly 1,000 bite-sized telegrams that he wrote during his presidency helped win the Civil War by projecting presidential power in unprecedented fashion. The federal government had been slow to adopt the telegraph after Samuel Morse's first successful test message in 1844. Prior to the Civil War, federal employees who had to send a telegram from the nation's capital had to wait in line with the rest of the public at the city's central telegraph office. Days after the bombardment of Fort Sumter, Andrew Carnegie, the future industrialist who at the time was superintendent of the Pittsburgh Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad, sent the following order to the railroad superintendent of telegraphs. Send four of your best operators to Washington at once. Prepare to enter government telegraph service for war. Those four men would be the first of the 1,500 called into service in the newly created U.S. Military Telegraph Corps. Using wire coils borne on the backs of mules, the Corps undertook the dangerous work of crossing battlefields to lay more than 15,000 miles of telegraph wires on poles, fences, and bushes. That allowed news from the front lines to be transmitted nearly instantaneously to a telegraph office that had been established inside the old library of the War Department building adjacent to the White House in March 1862. Lincoln, who had a keen interest in technology and remains the only American president with a patent, spent more of his presidency in the War Department's telegraph office than anywhere else outside of the White House. As a president who craved knowledge, he trod a well-worn path across the executive mansion's lawn to the War Department to monitor the latest intelligence arriving in dots and dashes. David Homer Bates, one of the four original members of the U.S. Military Telegraph Corps, recounted in his book, Lincoln in the Telegraph Room, that several times a day, the president sat down at a telegraph office desk near a window overlooking Pennsylvania Avenue and read through the fresh stack of incoming telegrams, which he called lightning messages. As telegraph keys chattered, he peered over the shoulders of the operators who scribbled down the incoming messages converted from Morse code. He visited the office nearly every night before turning in and slept there on a cot during pivotal battles. Lincoln, though, had not made a great first impression upon Bates and the other telegraph operators. He seemed to us uncouth and awkward, and he did not conform to our ideas of what a president should be, Bates recalled. But the more time the president spent in the telegraph office, the more their impressions changed. He would there relax from the strain and care ever present at the White House, and while waiting for fresh dispatches, or while they were being deciphered, would make running comments or tell his inimitable stories, Bates wrote. I soon forgot his awkward appearance, and came to think of him as a very attractive and indeed lovable person. Major A.E.H. Johnson remembered. He came over from the White House several times a day and, thrusting his long arm down among the messages, fished them out one by one and read them. 
He had a habit of sitting frequently on the edge of his chair with his right knee dragged down to the floor. Bates also recalled to Lincoln that in the intervals of waiting, he would write messages of inquiry, counsel, and encouragement to the generals in the field, to the governors of the loyal states, and sometimes dispatches announcing pardons or reprieve to soldiers under sentence of death for desertion or sleeping on post. Lincoln even communicated by telegraph with his family when they were away from the nation's capital. One time when traveling in New York City, Mary Lincoln wired her husband asking for $50 and news of their young son's pet goats at the White House. Lincoln telegrammed back, Tell Tad the goats and father are very well, especially the goats. As his family learned, Lincoln would be very direct in his communications. While generals such as George McClellan sent 10-page missives, the president replied in three to four sentences. The telegraph allowed the president to act as a true commander-in-chief by issuing commands to his generals and directing the movement of forces in nearly real time. For the first time, a national leader could have virtual battlefront conversations with his military officers. The lack of interstate telegraph lines in the South precluded Confederate President Jefferson Davis from doing the same. Lincoln wasn't shy about stepping in and asserting his thoughts on telegrams that weren't even addressed to him. When General Ulysses S. Grant rejected General Henry Halleck's suggestion to remove troops from the siege of Petersburg in 1864, the president lent this support after reading their communications. Hold on with a bulldog grip and chew and choke as much as possible. To Lincoln, the telegraph office was not just a 19th century command center, but a sanctuary from the throngs who descended upon the White House every day in search of jobs and favors. I come here to escape my persecutors, Lincoln quipped to telegraph officer Albert B. Chandler. Telling homespun tales and cracking jokes, the president befriended the officer's telegraph operators. When news of Grant's capture of Vicksburg, Mississippi arrived by wire in 1863, Lincoln flouted regulations and bought beer for the operators, drinking a sudsy toast with the general's telegram in his hand. On April 8, 1865, Lincoln himself telegraphed the office from City Point, Virginia, with news of Grant's capture of Richmond. A week later, the telegraph office broke the devastating news of Lincoln's assassination to the nation as it tapped out the message that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton wrote from the president's deathbed across the street from Ford's Theater. Abraham Lincoln died this morning at 22 minutes after 7. And a great job, as always, to Greg Hengler for the production on the piece. And a special thanks to Christopher Klein, Abraham Lincoln, the first wired president. And if you love what you're listening to and the stories we bring you every week, please give us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever platform you listen to us on. And finally, on May 22, 2011, Joplin, Missouri took a direct hit from the costliest tornado in American history. Though the scar remains, Joplin has recovered in amazing ways. Former KSNF Channel 16 weatherman Jeremiah Cook and reporter Gretchen Bolander tells the story of love and loss in Joplin. As far as who I am, I'm a Southwest Missouri farm boy. I love Southwest Missouri. I am convinced that when uh, the work of saving humanity is done and God retires, he is going to retire in Southwest Missouri. There's just no place like it on earth. I think that's 
part of what made it so much fun to be a journalist and, and a weather anchor here was I was getting a chance to tell the stories and predict the weather for my family, for the people I grew up with. This was not just another place to work, this was my home. My wife used to joke that I was married to her, but the weather was my mistress. And uh, honestly, I guess that kind of was true. I loved the problem of trying to figure out what the weather was gonna do. You know, when you look at the news desk, there's four people on the news desk. Three of them are telling you what has already happened and one of them's trying to figure out what's going to happen. I wanted to be that guy that was trying to outsmart mother nature, if you will. The day of the Joplin tornado, on one hand, it was the best day. I mean, it's, and it's weird because sitting here thinking about it, on one hand, the number of people that I've, I've heard say that, you know, we were able to save their lives. They took our, our warning seriously, that their, their kids are here today because of what we did. Their, their grandkids are here today. They're here today. Uh, and my, my wife was pregnant with our child at the time. I, two weeks to the day later, she gave birth to our first child. She was at home in the path of the tornado and she was watching and she's here today because she took what I was saying on TV seriously. Uh, and so is my daughter and, and now my son. But at, at the same time, it was also kind of the worst day. <laughs> That's, it, it is the kind of hellscape I hope I never have to walk through again. So it was a Sunday, and Sunday is a day off for me. I did not see anything in the hours leading up to it that made me feel like I needed to come into the station. And you have to understand that a lot of times we have a tornado touchdown in the area, and there's so much rural area around here that, you know, unfortunately, maybe a farmer is affected, you know, a barn could be lost or some cattle, but the vast majority of touchdowns in our area don't affect a population center, which of course is going to be the highest priority. Um, so I don't remember anything of the nature. I remember being outside probably within half an hour of the touchdown and the sky was blue with a few clouds. It was a beautiful day. I was outside and having conversation and just enjoying the day. Honestly, there's not a lot that happens on Sundays uh, in this area. At the time, I was the weekend weather anchor, so obviously I would do the, the weather for the 10 o'clock newscast. I also worked as a reporter on the weekends, but I had pre-shot and pre-edited all my stuff, and I had some overtime, so the news director was gonna let me take the afternoon off and come in that evening. But with severe weather, I mean, that trumps everything. When they issued the first warning, I was actually over at a friend's house. We had just sat down, I think we were playing John Madden football. And uh, in fact, I think I was winning. But anyway, I got the phone call that they had issued that warning. As I recall, I want to say that we thought the threat was more central Arkansas. So I left, I came to the station and 
to be honest with you, for the first couple hours, it was just a run-of-the-mill event. Something, you know, it, it was nothing we hadn't done 10,000 times before. Other than the storm moved really, really slowly. There were times the National Weather Service would put out updates and it was moving, you know, one mile per hour. Outside of that, it, it was... It was nothing that I hadn't done dozens, if not hundreds of times in the, the 12 years of my career leading up to that. Nature had other plans. And we have this one, this one pesky cell that fires up in Labette County, about 60 miles due west of Joplin or so. And I'll tell you, it got a little frustrating because it just did not move. It was kind of meandering around Parsons and they finally put out a tornado warning on it. And from the radar returns, it looked like it was just raining like you wouldn't believe. And then when it finally started to move, we all thought, okay, finally, this is, this is gonna get going. It's gonna get out of the area and we can get back to business as usual. But it kept moving and it picked up speed and it made a beeline for Joplin. Station two on copies. Uh, National Weather Service just said there was some small rotation on the west side of Joplin, Black Cat, and 20th Street area. We had an anonymous phone call of two funnel clouds in the Loma Linda area. I remember when the warnings came down, I was sitting there in the studio, we were live on air, and I was talking about what we were seeing on the Doppler radar, and uh, one of our, our other weather anchors was there. We were kind of going back and forth, talking about what we were seeing on the radar, talking about the warnings, updating on this, updating on that, and then one of the camera operators in the studio started snapping their fingers and waving their hands and they pointed over at one of the monitors. Uh, it was our tower camera. And I looked at it and I thought, man, I know what that is. I should know what that is. But you know, sometimes when you, you see something and you know what it is, but you see it out of context and it's like your mind refuses to recognize what it is. That was that moment. I had seen tornadoes dozens of times in person and gosh, I hate to even think about the number of hours of video I've seen with tornadoes in them. But for some reason, it's like my mind was refusing to acknowledge that was a tornado. And there was about a second and a half of, oh my God, what do I do now? And I remembered some advice my dad had given me. Dad, Dad always said, do something, just do something and you'll figure out how to make it the right thing. And I just started talking. What we were seeing, where it was headed, what we could tell from it. I remember seeing these flashes at the bottom of it and I thought at first those are lightning strikes, but it quickly became apparent that it was the tornado 
hitting power lines and hitting transformers and, and hitting houses. And that was like the moment when reality came crashing down. Like that was the nightmare moment. You know, you spend all this time preparing yourself. You spend all this time studying. You spend all this time trying to figure out how do you stop this from happening? It's like being in a horror movie and realizing you're powerless to stop the monster. It's coming, it's coming for the people you love and there is nothing you can do about it. There was a point that day where I didn't know if my wife was still here, my mom and dad, my sister's husband, a police officer with Joplin Police Department, I've got friends all over town. All these people are, are in the path of it. And when I started talking again, I was just praying that I was talking to them, that I was telling them that this is happening. Get out of the way, find shelter, do something. I was just hoping to God that they were watching, that they were seeing what I was seeing and that we were going to get the message through to them. You know, it's a heck of a thing trying to trying to hold it together emotionally in a moment like that. But you just do it. You just you act and you move. Yeah, you know, we we got in the crawl space, so we were pretty insulated from hearing and certainly seeing anything. And the reports that we continued to get at that point said that there may have been a touchdown on the northern outskirts of town from one, one source that we had heard, which was a very unpopulated area. So again, I, I started to think, well, maybe something's happened. And then on my particular block, there was no impact other than the weather had started to, started to get cooler. It took a few minutes before I started to hear from anybody who was concerned that Joplin was in bad shape. You could have filled a library full of books with what we didn't know in that moment. And I doubt you could have filled a notepad with what we did know. Even I would find out later, even city leaders didn't know how bad it was at that point because it was getting dark, it was hard to get around, it was hard to kind of get your arms around it. So I had actually seen bad damage, but it didn't look like EF5 damage. It was an EF5, that's the top end. Those are, those are the bad boys. I want to say that the path of destruction was around 15, 15 and a half miles in length and three quarters of a mile wide. The wind speeds were around 260 miles an hour. You don't think about 260 mile an hour winds, that's, that's 260 mile an hour winds, that's like saying a trillion dollars. I think it's a number that's hard for somebody to fathom. You know, if you've ever been in a car driving down the road, it, 50 miles per hour and you put your hand outside the window and feel how hard it is to keep your hand in one spot. I mean, take that and multiply it by five and that's what was happening. And not just in one little bitty spot, but, but in a three quarter of a mile wide area. But at, at that moment, nobody knew it was an F5. Nobody knew how wide it was. Nobody knew how bad the damage was. So they put me in a news car and they said, go out I think I finally got sent home from work around 2.30, 3 o'clock Sunday morning. And by that time I had seen large portions of the town. Folks were worried that two or 3,000 people might be dead. You have a large section where it almost looked like the storm had taken a scythe. I have a very good friend whose home, the largest 
highest part of a wall was about four feet. I'm still shocked that he actually survived. Everything was gone. You know, roads had power lines and poles and trees. There was just debris everywhere. I know a lot of folks would later talk about this, this tornado schmutz that was all over everything. And it was kind of insulation and little pieces of wood. And it's just, it's hard to describe what that was like if you haven't seen it, but it was almost a coating of almost everything. You know, and it's, it's funny, 10 years later, I can still see St. John's Hospital. I mean, the tornado hit it. It hit it, 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 it's, it's like it specifically targeted the building. It, that was the feeling I always had. I mean, it, it uh, broken windows and cars flipped over. Uh, the MedFlight helicopter looked like it had been used as a child's toy. And seeing the, seeing the building in the shape it was in, that was, that was tough because it, it was it was such an iconic fixture of the community. I mean, there was there was nothing that looked like St. John's. And that was the first, oh dear sweet God, no moment. This went from being a storm to being one of those epoch moments in life where everything changes. You know, I remember hearing stories afterwards. I, I had a couple of friends that were nurses there and you know, you talk about heroes. Those guys were, they were cut up, they were bloodied and their first thought was get flashlights and find patients. Find people who need help. And you know, that's, that's I know I've talked about the destruction here, but if you'll humor me for a moment, I said earlier I can't imagine living anywhere else. As we were driving across Joplin, the tornado wasn't even off the ground. You could look to the east and see the tornado. And men and women were out there helping their neighbors. They dug themselves out and then they went and they found someone else to help. That's what it means to be from Southwest Missouri. I mean, they, they took one look at this situation and they said, no, sir, not in our backyard. Over the next couple of weeks, there were some long, hard days in there. Not just dealing with the news, but my house was damaged and my wife and I were temporarily living with my mom and dad and she was extremely pregnant. Her place of employment had been blown off the map. So we don't know if she's got a job anymore. We haven't had anybody out to see how badly damaged our house was and whether or not it was even gonna be salvageable. There were just so many unknowns, but the thing that kept me going every day was going out there and you would see people that had lost everything. And they weren't worried about themselves. They were worried about the next person over. If I remember correctly, we had the roads cleared in three days. And that was, that was something else. One of the things we would hear later from FEMA was that 
the clearing of roads in the Joplin destruction zone was one of the fastest operations they had seen because folks just came. Folks came with their heavy equipment and started moving things. They jumped in, they didn't wait for someone to say, yes, go to this area and do this. They just started helping. We had people who drove their tractors over to move stuff, to be of use. They'd show up with their pickup trucks and their shovels. They would show up with food. They would show up with water. They would show up with anything you needed, even if that was just a shoulder to cry on for a minute. They, they were there. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I feel like it's a debt of gratitude that can never be repaid. I do think it definitely speaks to Joplin that people want to help each other. You know, not everybody's perfect, but when there is a need, people will pitch in and. I have to say for myself, you know, as a reporter, sometimes it's hard not to become cynical because you do see a lot of bad things that happen to people that other people do to each other. And this is one of those cases that really kind of helps restore your faith in humanity that people want good things to happen for other people and they don't want them to feel alone when they might be at their darkest hour. My personal heroes, Mike Wollston, who was mayor of Joplin at the time, he was out picking up debris in the city, and, and I think one of my favorite moments with Mike, he was on TV with Anderson Cooper, and Anderson Cooper, you know, he's trying to interview the mayor of the town that just got blasted, and Mike is standing there with work gloves, picking debris up off the ground, and as soon as Anderson says, you know, thank you, Mr. Mayor, he says, no problem. And he turns around, he puts his work gloves back on, and on national TV, starts picking debris up and throwing it in the back of a wagon to be hauled off. It was like getting your batteries recharged when you were around him and you just saw the professionalism. I, I think I'm a better father, I'm a better person, I'm a better husband, because I was around guys like Mike at the time that the storm hit. And I got to see how a first-class professional handles themselves. You know, I remember it was a few weeks after the tornado, which is funny because the day of the tornado, I mean, I mean, I can remember that stuff just, man, it's like, it's like it's in 4K clarity in my mind. The sights, the smells, the sounds, the actual tactile sensations of the day. But those first few weeks afterwards are kind of a blur. But I remember at one point I was standing there with Mike and I said, where do we go from here? And he said, don't look at this for what it is right now. We can't change that. Look at it for what it can be. Look at it for where we can go. And I think on one hand, that's, that's how you get through it. We had a lot of people in Joplin who decided that this storm was not gonna be what defined us. It was going to be what happened next. You know, there are some amazing things that have happened since then. You know, parts of Joplin look completely different today. These are things that would not have happened, you know, without the being forced to replace. But they tore down the old hospital and built a brand new one. To have a brand new hospital built, you know, just a few years ago, that's not something every community can say. We have, you know, the housing. You know, we had a, a large amount of housing that was lost. All of that is brand new. Not, not every single lot's been built on but a lot of lots are replaced. I would have to guess at least three out of four probably have been replaced with newer, better housing. We would get new reporters that would come to town. And of course, 
the first thing they're going to ask about is the tornado and the recovery. And I remember there was one young lady who uh, I promised her that I would take her on a tour. So we're driving around town and she said, well, this is nice and all, but where was the tornado? I said, you, you're, you are literally sitting at a stop sign in the middle of where the tornado was. And she said, no way. And this, this is just a few years later and there are houses and the lots are cleaned up and there are kids playing in the yards and businesses are rebuilt and things are reopened and the high school is back up and running and churches have rebuilt. And the areas where maybe the recovery hasn't happened yet stand out more than the areas that have. You know, again, the, the, the city just decided it's I, I don't know that it was any one person who consciously did it, but it, at some point along the way, we as a community like collectively decided, nope, we, we're not, we're not going to tolerate this. We are going to come back bigger, better, and stronger than ever. And in a lot of ways that's happened. But you know, for me, uh, I'm sorry, this is hard to talk about. For me, the thing that doesn't go away is the 162 we weren't able, we weren't able to save. I oftentimes wonder what could I have done differently. You know, my mind wanders back to that because every Christmas, every birthday, every 4th of July, there's 162 families that they don't have that. And I guess in a way I blame myself a little bit for that. That maybe I should have done something different. I don't know what that would have been, but part of me feels like I should still try. We feel like we owe it to those people that, that aren't here now to live the best lives possible to make Joplin the best community possible, to make Southwest Missouri and, and the four states as a whole the best it can possibly be, because we owe it to those folks. I am so proud of this community and how we've recovered. And, you know, we're, we're no different than any other town. We have our problems. But, you know, for one moment, everything that was right and perfect about humanity existed here in Joplin. I guess that's the big takeaway is when push came to shove, man, I, w I wouldn't have wanted to have anybody else at my back. When disaster does happen, when, when these moments do strike, it, it's the person on your left and the person on your right. That's who you're going to have to depend on. You know, that's what it was. That's what it was in that moment. It was love. Everybody set aside their differences and they came together. And great job as always to Monty on the piece and a special thanks to Jeremiah Cook and Gretchen Bolander for telling this story. Both worked at KSNF Channel 16 in Joplin at the time. And also a special thanks to Katrina Hine for getting us this audio and helping bring Jeremiah and Gretchen to us. As a reporter, Gretchen said, it's hard not to be cynical. This is a story that recharged my faith in humanity. 
And my goodness, what Jeremiah said about their town's leader, Mayor Mike Wollston, and people who saw him on TV couldn't forget. The storm wouldn't define Joplin. What happened next would. We are not going to tolerate this, said Jeremiah. We are going to come back bigger and stronger. And yet always, for Jeremiah, the 162 lives lost. Well, that lingered. That he couldn't forget. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. We have the story of a man who beat the game show, Press Your Luck. The story of a foster parent that has been the home to over 60 foster children. And also the story of Hollywood star Wayne Morris going to war, plus many, many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.